Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. When Luke tells his story about what happened at the tomb on resurrection morning, he gives us an interaction between the angel and the women, where the angel asks the women a pointed question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And then he went on to say to them, remember when Jesus said to you that he would rise again on the third day? And the question we're going to bring up today is, when the angel said that to the women, how did he do it? Was it a polite reminder to them? Like, well, bless your heart, ladies. Don't you remember when Jesus said this? Or was it more like a sharp rebuke? Remember when Jesus told you? And depending on whether you think it was a polite reminder or a sharp rebuke, might color how you feel that the women would have reacted to what he said to them and would even influence maybe what they said later on to the disciples when the women went to tell them what the angel had said to them at the tomb. It's an interesting discussion and conversation, and we're going to talk more about it in this episode. So I wanted to read this to you because um, we talk a lot uh, when we talk about the New Testament times about Rome and about um, how you know the Jewish people were under the control of Rome and um, I don't think you know we we we, we talk about it pretty easily, uh, but. It wasn't easy, and um, I don't think probably any of us can really have an appreciation fully for what Rome was, when Rome was, what Rome was. Um, and so this is David Palmer's book, and um, I just finished it, but he has a description in here of some of the things that Rome did and when I read it, I was like, oh my goodness, it just gave me a new appreciation for trying to understand when you were living under Roman control, what that must have been like, kind of. So he's talking about Revelation 18, and he says, and there's a, there's a thing in Revelation 18 about how the kings of the earth stand far off 
lamenting their economic loss in the end times. And he says, the list of 28 imported luxury goods in Revelation 18 reflects a strong prophetic critique of wealth gained through exploitation and the intoxicating effect of conspicuous consumption. Rome increased her wealth by plundering the nations. Gold was imported from Spain, where mines had been confiscated as state property. Wealthy Roman families in the first century made gold a feature of extravagant luxury. Precious stones were imported from India. Pearls were imported from the Persian Gulf in India. Romans valued the pearl after the diamond, but for the largest and best, they would pay more than for any other piece of jewelry. Nero, at times, scattered pearls among the people of Rome. He used to swallow them, dissolved in vinegar at banquets, for the thrill of consuming such vast expense at a single gulp. Purple was an extremely expensive dye extracted from Urex snails and used to mark status and wealth. Silk was imported from China. Citron wood came from the citrus trees that grew along the North African coast and were valued for their unique graining patterns. Tables made from citron wood became one of the most expensive fashions of early imperial Rome, indispensable at banquets. Rome imported marble from Africa, Egypt, and Greece. Augustus famously stated, I found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. Wine was in such surplus that Domitian passed laws to reduce viticulture by almost one half. Wheat was imported from Africa and Egypt in vast quantities. Thousands of ships were involved in the grain trade between Rome and Alexandria. Animals and chariots were used to gratify the Roman lust for entertainment. Lions perished in the Middle East and Mesopotamia at this time due to overhunting. 9,000 animals were killed on the opening day of the Colosseum. The most devastating cargo was human souls. Slaves were frequently taken through conquest. The Jewish war alone yielded 97,000 slaves, glutting the market and driving prices down. Other sources of slaves were foundlings, children sold by their parents, adults selling themselves due to debt, and even kidnapping. Slaves formed 30 to 40 percent of the entire population of the empire. The Roman Senate rejected a proposed law that slaves should wear distinctive dress lest they realize their strength of numbers. So Roman, the Roman Empire was vast. It was full of extravagance. And um, if you were on the wrong side of it, you became a slave. And a lot of those slaves ended up in the Colosseum and other places. So when you were under the control and uh, dominion, domination of Rome, uh, you did walk on eggshells because at any moment, if you found yourself on the wrong side of Rome, um, you could be in big trouble um, automatically. And, and it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul at one point actually wanted to go to Rome and appealed to go to Rome, which shows the kind of, um, you know, faith, that, the, the kind of courage that his faith gave him. Because Faith can give you courage, uh, for, for sure. So I thought you'd find that uh, that'd be an interesting insight. Okay, so today we've uh, progressed to Luke, 
and his um, account of resurrection morning. We finished Mark last week, and um, so now we are going to look at um, Matthew, Mark, Luke. So Luke. So um, I'm going to read from the. I'm not going to read it in Greek, but I'm going to read the Greek, uh, the way the Greek is written, and then you can compare it to what you have. I have the NIV here too, so we'll kind of look at that as we go. So starting in um, chapter 24 of Luke is where uh, he starts his uh, account of resurrection morning at the tomb. It says, but, which you probably don't have on your translation, but, but let's go back, since he's saying but, let's go back to the verse or two before that because he is, is adding on to what was there. So let's go to verse 55 of 23. Chapter 23, verse 55. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Jesus, that is. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So then he starts verse chapter 24 as with, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing which they had prepared aromatics and some others with them. Does anyone have that phrase on that verse? Uh, verse one, and some others with them? No, you don't have it, do you? So what he's saying is that it was um, these women who had prepared uh, the aromatics and some others with them. So I get the impression there is that these others with them did not prepare aromatics, but they still came with the women. We don't know who they are. We don't have any names. It just says others. So, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came, uh, meaning they referring to verse 56 of chapter 50, of chapter 23, who were the ones who went home and prepared the spices. They came to the tomb, bringing which they had prepared aromatics and some others with them. So. Um, you don't get that in your most translations. So it was the women who had the spices who bought them and prepared them, but also there are some women who came also who were not, who did not carry aromatics and, and spices with them and that kind of thing. And, and that brings up just one, one quick point, uh, one quick question I have. So they brought the spices with them to do what? To anoint Jesus' body, right, as a burial, as a burial thing, custom that they had at that, in that day. But obviously, Jesus was not there in the tomb, and so they didn't use the spices. So what did they do with the spices? Have you ever thought about, well, what happened to the spices? What did they do with the spices? We have spices. We went out, we bought them, we prepared them, they probably were expensive, and yet we got there and we didn't need them. So what happened to the spices? Where, what did did they? <laughs> Just, yeah, I mean, we don't we don't know, do we? we? Have no idea what they did with them. But you know why we don't know? Because it's not. It ends up not being important. It ends up not being important. And I wrote down here this. I said. What I think is that of great value to men 
has no value when compared to the riches of knowing the resurrected Jesus. So the spices that they brought had great value to men, but when they found that Jesus was alive and resurrected and not dead, but alive and risen, then it had no value to these women anymore because they had a much, something of so much more greater value, a resurrected Christ, a resurrected Lord. So the, the spices were no longer important whatsoever to them. So, okay, so let's go on then. Um, verse two. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And having entered, they found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, uh, as, were, as they were perplexed about this, that behold, do you have the word behold in your translation? Good. Uh, that as they were perplexed uh, about this, they about this, that behold, two men stood by them in garments shining. So I first wanted to talk about why they were, what word do you have? This In the Greek, it's translated as they were perplexed. Do you have any other word in your translation there in um, verse 2 or verse 4? Wondering. Yeah, mine has wondering. Anybody else have anything different than that? So the... The, the, the idea in the Greek is of wondering, or here I have perplexed, is that they were, the idea is that the, you're, entire, you're entirely at a loss. You're entirely at a loss to explain or to comprehend what's happening. So when they see uh, these two angels, they are completely, entirely at a loss as to how to get their heads around it. They are wondering, but they are, I think even more, it's even a deeper than that. They were perplexed. They were, they couldn't, they couldn't get their arms around it, couldn't get their head around it. They, they were entirely at a loss about it. So, and then it goes on that, uh, what you probably have, what do you, I have um, in the original Greek is translated as in shining garments. Yeah, so those are both those are both good. Those are both good because the idea here of shining in the Greek means both of those things. It means to shine like lightning, and it means dazzling. It means both of those things. So if you have dazzling, that's good. If you have gleam like lightning, that's good. If you have shining, but shining, I think doesn't really do it justice either. It's this brightness, like lightning, like dazzling. It, this was not just regular white, white. This was something that just took your attention. Uh, dazzling, gleaming, uh, lightning. Uh, was it, and the, the closest Luke could come to describe it, it's, just, it's like lightning, it's dazzling. So it says, um, so it, came, it gleamed like lightning, and um, he stood beside them. And then verse 5, and filled with fear, and that word there in the Greek is fear, they were afraid, and f- because you know, every time you see an angel, you're, you're afraid. And filled with fear, and, and, uh, and actually the translation is, and becoming filled with fear, becoming filled, 
filled with fear. Now, my translation in verse 5 just says, in their fright. Is that what you have, in their fright or something? It's terrified. Terrified, yeah. Terrified is probably a better idea of it. It, it really, they were terrified. And, and, says, and, and they, were, they were becoming more and more filled with fear the longer they stood there. So, and becoming filled with fear, and they bowing the face to the earth, they said to them, they, meaning the angels, said to them, the women, the angel said to the women, why seek ye the living with the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you, yet being in Galilee, saying, it behooveth the Son of Man to be delivered up into hands of men sinful, of sinful men, and to be crucified, and the third day to arise. So I want to spend some time. There's a lot there to kind of unpack. Uh, first of all, I wanted to unpack what, what the angel says here is, he says, he is not here, but he is risen. Remember, remember, how he spoke to you, yet being in Galilee, saying so on and so forth. He's, and, and he gives all the things that he says. So I said, well, okay, where and when did Jesus say this? So I'll, let's use just Luke. Let's just use Luke, okay? So go back to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, verse, start with verse 18. Luke 9, 18. It says, Luke 9, or Luke 9, 18, Once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, quote, it should be in red in your Bibles if you have red lettered. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples, isn't he? So, and, and with the disciples, there were these women who traveled with them. They may not have been there at the time, but certainly the disciples would have gone back and told the women who were with them, guess what Jesus just said? Yeah. He said this. He said this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go to verse, uh, let's find another thing. We'll talk about that in just a sec. So go to Luke, eight, uh, Luke uh, 18, Luke chapter 18. And go to verse 31, Luke 18, 31. So here it says, verse 31, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets will uh, uh, about by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the what do you have there? Gentiles? The Gentiles, which what the angel says here, he says, uh, saying it, it behooveth the Son of Man to be delivered up into the hands of, of sinful men. 
Well, at the time, at the time, the Gentiles were seen as sinful. They were they were not Jewish. They were seen as sin, sinful people. And it says, and to go on then here in verse eighteen, they will mock him. This is Jesus speaking. They will of himself. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Uh, on the third day, uh, see, uh, kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. So what's the, the angel say? He says that Jesus said, told them, don't you remember that he said the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day to arise? This is exactly what Jesus is saying here. And he's saying it to who? To the twelve, who then, then would have told the women. Where's that? Means he'll come back to life again. He's he's alive. He's dead. He's alive again. Okay. So, so but so the key then is to look at verse thirty-four, and let's unpack. So I want to unpack that just a little bit. So verse thirty-four of eighteen says the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. <laughs> So, I, you know, this is Luke's commentary kind of taking the, the side of the disciples here, like saying, well, you know, because Luke knows what happens on down the road. Luke already knows that Jesus is risen, that he's resurrected. He already knows that the women are going to be told this, and he already knows that the women aren't going to remember it, and he also knows that eventually when the women go to tell the disciples that they're not going to believe it. So he knows all of this, and so when he writes this in 18, knowing what's going to happen, he already knows it, he's kind of trying, I think, kind of trying to defend the disciples here in what he's, in, in what ultimately happened. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, But I think it's interesting to see kind of what he says. So he says, first of all, they did not understand. And so the Greek word there used as, to, as understand means putting together the pieces of a puzzle, for an, for, for an example. It's like putting together the pieces of a puzzle. So it says they did not understand. So they had all these pieces of the puzzle of Jesus and all the things that they saw and heard and experienced. But when he said this, it was so outside of what they had experienced up to that point. They had seen the miracles. They had seen the healings. You know, they had been a part of this at this time. And for him to say, hey, guess what? I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be insulted. I'm going to be spit on. And I'm going to be flogged. And I'm going to die. That it was just so much out of the realm of what they had experienced up to that point that the, that, that piece didn't fit the. You ever done a jigsaw puzzle? You have this piece. It doesn't. How it doesn't fit. I don't. That that piece of the puzzle did not fit with the puzzle they were putting together in their own minds of who Jesus was. So that's what that means. And it says they didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. And the idea there of no, there's two different kinds of no in, in, the, in Greek, basically. One no is to know intellectually. 
It's an intellectual knowledge. You know by observing something, it's acquired knowledge. You, you learn it and you know it because you have acquired it. You've observed it and you have evaluated it. So it's intellectual knowledge. You know something through observation and evaluation and acquire, you acquire that knowledge. Another, there's a different Greek word for knowledge that's like just, just your gut. You just have a gut feeling. You just know in your gut. You just you don't have to you don't have to understand it. You don't have to evaluate it. You don't have to you just you just know. But we only have one word in English, unfortunately. So this know is the intellectual knowledge. It says what Luke is saying is, and they did not know, they couldn't, from what they were observing, from what they had acquired, their intellectual knowledge of, of Jesus, this they didn't they didn't know because this is not what they were observing and not what they were seeing and evaluating at that time. And then the key word here, I think above and beyond all, is the meaning was hidden from them. So what do you think that means? That, this, that, that, what, Jesus, that what Jesus said there, they didn't understand it, it didn't fit their jigsaw puzzle, they didn't know it because it didn't fit what they were observing, but also that the meaning of what he said was hidden from them. Too much for them to grasp. If they had, they would have come up with a billion other things But I think when I read that, they had a totally different, as you would point out, had a totally different notion of what the mission was. Right. They thought Jesus was going to be this big soldier that was going to come in and, and and what? Free them from Rome, right? So we just talked about what a bad bully Rome is. So you can understand now with maybe a new appreciation when the people of Jesus' day thought, who believed in him as Messiah, thought he's going to free us from Rome, why that was such a big deal. Because Rome was the big bad bully on the street. I mean, really bad. And so, of course, they wanted Jesus or their Messiah to come and to free them from the Roman rule. The one thing I, that is, that the one thing I used to always read that and think, well, God was hiding it from them. So its meaning was hidden from them. God was hiding the meaning of what Jesus said from them for some reason. They were spiritually blinded from what Jesus said. And that is not right. That is not what it means. It means closer to what Grady says. It was hidden from them because they just, when, so, when you just don't understand something, it's hidden from you because you just, intellectually can't grasp it. And I'll give you a really good example of that in my own life. High school physics class. Okay? From day one to day last, the whole time I was in high school physics, I did not understand one word of what the teacher was saying. Okay? So the meaning of what she was trying to teach me, she was trying to tell me, she was trying to explain it to me, like Jesus did to his disciples, she could have been, she might as well have been speaking Greek to me, because I didn't, it was, the meaning of it was hidden from me. Not that she was hiding it, she was trying not to hide it, but it was hidden from me because I couldn't understand it. I just, it wasn't in me to understand physics. Thank goodness I had a lab partner who went on to be an engineer. He understood everything. And so, and, he, and most of the work in our physics class was done as a team. He sat beside me. And this is what I always, his name was Donnie. I would say, Donnie, whatever you think, that's what we're going with. <laughs> that's what we're going with. So I think he got an A and I got a C. So, <laughs> no. 
But that, that's what it means. They were hidden from them, not that God hid it from them, not that they were spiritually blinded. But it was hidden from them. They just couldn't understand it. They just could not understand. So, well, when, well, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I don't know what I think it was before, maybe it was after this, that he uh, said something and Peter had said, no, Lord, that cannot be, that cannot happen. Yeah. You cannot do that. He took him aside even. Right. He can't talk about these things. Right. So I don't I, so. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Right? Because... And, and I wonder, too, if maybe part of the problem with the disciples at that time is maybe they didn't, they didn't want to understand it. Maybe they didn't want to understand it. When I, when I, when I read this, I'll be honest, I have no sympathy for Judas. Because Judas wanted him to be to reveal himself. Right. And I honestly believe that what Judas did, as horrible as it was, and as unforgiving as it was, was to get him to reveal himself. Right. Okay. So so somebody comes to arrest him and suddenly he, he reveals, you know, I I honestly think that Judas thought that would happen. Yes, but the problem was that Judas was trying to force him to do it. So, you know, we can't force God to do things our way. We have to force ourselves to do things God's way. And that was the, that was the problem. So. So, now here's, so, so, now, so now here's my question to you, too. He says, and I'm just reading from the NIV version here. The angels say, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. How did, the, how did the angel say this to them? Did he say, because what he says is remember, right? So is he just giving them a reminder? Like, you know, I say to Jan, Jan, remind me that, you know, I need to take my bottle of water out to the car when we leave because I'm out of water. And then she'll say on the way out the door, hey, Greg, remember we need the water. And so that's just like a nice, polite reminder. So is that the way the angel said, hey, hey, ladies, remember how he told you why he was in? You know, this is like a nice, polite reminder. Or like, you know, Jan will tell me, hey, Greg, remind me uh, when to take water out to the car because we're almost out, and I'll forget, you know, to remind her. And we get out to the car, and we're on our way somewhere else. She'll say, "Greg, did you?" you she'll say, "Greg, remember I told you to remind me about the water, and now we don't have it." <laughs> oh, I know she doesn't do that. She just uses illustration. But so, but but so, my question is. Was this a polite, nice remind? Hey, ladies, remember? Or was this a rebuke? Was he saying, "Remember how he told you why he was still with you in Galilee?" The son. He. It, what, how can you not remember? What's wrong with you? So, which which do you think it was? Was it a nice, polite reminder? Or was it a stern rebuke? Did he actually tell them, or did did they get a second man? I think every time I've read it, I've read it as a polite reminder, right? Because an angel, angel's going to be angry. An angel's going to be, hey, remember how he told you when he was in Galilee? But then I think about it, 
And I think, for me personally, which one makes the greatest impact on me? Which makes the greatest, am I, when I get a polite reminder, does that have a great impact on me? Or when I get rebuked, does that have the greatest impact on me? Becky? I, I think the Holy Spirit knows as well enough yeah, I think when you when you take into account the fact that you know even at, at that point, as Luke says in in verse eighteen in chapter eighteen, that bless their hearts. You know, this is, this is like the idea I get. Bless their hearts. Jesus told them and they just didn't get it. Right, 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 right. That's when they went back and they must have told the whole thing. Remember when he said this? Oh, it really happened. Yeah, yeah. And so I think when you put it in context, when you say, well, in verse 18, Luke was kind of saying to them, bless their hearts, those disciples, they just couldn't get their head around it. So I think if you take that into account, probably this was a polite reminder here, too, that it was, bless your hearts, ladies. Don't you remember? Remember? Don't you remember? Come on. And I think that also just sets better with the way an angel would act. But I think it, it serves to, we should think about it, because the very next verse, which is exactly what you said, Grady, is in the very next verse, then, all of a sudden, uh, they remember. It says in verse 8, and they remembered his words. So, again, thinking of my own personal situation, I remember a lot more quickly when I get rebuked, when I have a polite reminder. So it's like the angel said, don't you remember? They go, oh, yeah, I remember now. So did they have that quick, quick memory because they were politely told to remember and a reminder they remember quickly because the angel rebuked them a little bit for not remembering I don't know. I just know what how I react, and I react much more quickly due to a rebuke than a reminder. So, that, that, something to think about. That kind of that they heard what he they yes. Didn't they, didn't it. they didn't understand it. Well, well, except go back to my physics class, okay? So, I don't remember anything about physics. So. You know, if you said to me, Greg, remember the thermonuclear dynamic uh, rule of thermodynamics or something? No, I don't remember it. Now, I remember now that we talked about it since you mentioned it, but that's something that I don't think about day to day. So maybe this is the kind of thing where it was said, they didn't understand it, they put it out of their mind, they went on with life, went on with ministry, with Jesus, went on with everything, and they just totally... Forgot it. Just blanked it out. I mean, it's possible. I, it can happen. I mean, I have all the time I have friends and, and relatives who say, Greg, remember when we did this? I'm like, no, I don't remember. So One of the things that I think we need to take a look at, too, is the diamond disciples were still hiding themselves, locked away, and... Uh, Women, I could see the angel saying, reminding them. But the disciples are still living in ignorance on 
Jesus' resurrection. And it wasn't, and then when the women go to talk to the disciples, what did they have to do? John and uh, Peter. Peter ran to the grave to find out to see if that's really true. But they're sitting there. Now I could see the disciples being rebuked. Because it's like, wait a minute now, you followed him for how many years and you still don't get it? And the women. Women have more attention sometimes than the men do. Let's be honest. When you're listening in education or anything like that, they pay more attention. We don't pay attention to the facts. We go according to our own theory. So I think that's in play here. And, you know, the disciples were afraid. They thought they were going to be attacked. And the women have come to say, hey, here we go. We, we've seen the angels. We've seen this. We've seen that. Well, get off your lofty ass. I think we get the, we get the, uh, a feel for that and what well, we just talked about about the description of they were perplexed they were wondering they uh, were entirely at a loss and I think not not just from the angels obviously but I think up think about everything they've experienced up to that point the stone is rolled away they didn't expect that the tomb is empty they didn't expect that now there are angels talking to them. They certainly didn't expect that. The angels are telling them Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He's risen. They didn't expect that. And then the and so they must have been emotionally hyped up. They their adrenaline was going. The thoughts were going through their mind. All of that was happening. And then the the angel says, "Don't you remember?" They're like, "Wait a minute. Hold on. Listen. I, I got all this other stuff to deal with. Now you're giving me something else to." Uh, okay, yeah, I remember that, but do you know, like, Jesus isn't here, and he's alive, you're saying. So they had a lot going on. I don't think we can blame them for not remembering, but give them credit for the fact that when the angel did remind them that they did remember, which is more than we can say for our poor old little disciples, right, who were elsewhere at the time. Here's another, I mean, I guess I'm going a little astray, but I think it's extremely interesting. When he told this, he told it to the twelve. Now, were the women there as well? And right. Hang up and conclude it. This kind of goes to, to something I think maybe David talked about how it is so unusual for women to actually be following and uh, being a part of whatever. But that's what it must mean because it doesn't even mention women. No, and I think I, I don't think the women were there, but essentially, if the angel says, "Remember when he told you, like he told the women," 
But I think what it means is that he told the twelve. There were always women in the camp. The women were there to help take care of Jesus. It says clearly. Uh, and so I think what happened is that Jesus told the twelve, and the twelve told the women. So they went and said, "No, Jesus just said he said he's going to die, or whatever." And so the women heard it secondhand, but it was the same as hearing it right from Jesus' mouth because Jesus had just told the disciples. He told you. I know. That's how it says. Yeah. So maybe the women were there. I'm, I'm not going to stand. I'm not going to die on that hill. Well, not only that, but I, I, I don't. I think it wasn't one year now. The other was With everybody. They wouldn't have really would have repeated it. <laughs> well, I can see it your way. I'm not going to argue that point for sure because it certainly could have happened that way. They, the women could have been there along with the twelve for sure. Okay, we're running out. Of, we're just about out of time. So I wanted to read this to you. This is uh, from a commentary by William Barclay, and uh, it's self-explanatory, but he's talking about where the, where the angel said to them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And this is what Barclay says about that. So agree. He says, the all-important and challenging question is in this story, is that the messengers, is that of the messengers in the tomb? Why are you looking for him who is alive among the dead? Many of us still look for Jesus among the dead. There are those who regard him as the greatest man and the noblest hero who ever lived, as one who lived the loveliest life ever seen on earth, but who then died. That will not do. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He is not merely a hero of the past. He is a living reality of the present. Then he has this uh, poem. I don't know who wrote it, where it came from, but it, he says, Shakespeare is dust and will not come to question from his Avon tomb. And Socrates and Shelley keep an attic and Italian sleep. They see not, but O Christians who throng Holborn and Fifth Avenue, may you not meet in spite of death a traveler from Nazareth? There are those who regard Jesus simply as a man who, whose life must be studied, his words examined, his teaching analyzed. There is a tendency to think of Christianity and Christ merely in terms of something to be studied. The tendency may soon um, may be seen. The, te this, the tendency may be seen in the quite simple fact of the extension of the study group and the extinction of the prayer meeting. So we have a study group here, may it never be without prayer, okay? So the extension of the study group and the extinction of the prayer meeting. Beyond doubt, study is necessary, but Jesus is not only someone to be studied. He is someone to be met and lived with every day. He is not only a figure in a book, even if that book is the greatest in the world. He is a living presence. There are those who see in Jesus the perfect pattern and example. He is that, but a perfect example can be the most heartbreaking thing in the world. For centuries, the birds gave men an example of flight, and yet not till modern times could man fly. Some of us, when young, were presented at school with a writing book. At the top, it had a line of copper plate writing. Below, it had blank lines on which we had to copy it. How utterly discouraging were our efforts to reproduce that perfect pattern. But then the teacher would come, and with her hand, would guide our hand over the lines, and we got nearer the ideal. That is what Jesus does. He is not only the pattern and the example, he helps us 
and guides us and strengthens us to follow that pattern and example. He is not simply a model for life. He is a living presence to help us to live. It may, be, it may well be that our Christianity has lacked an essential something because we too have been looking for him who is alive among the dead. So that was a really good conclusion there. So that's it for today. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you. Shalom.